In 2012, the nationwide arts and crafts chain Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc. sued the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, claiming that the Affordable Care Act's requirement that employment-based health care plans cover certain contraceptive methods violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as well as the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment. The owners of Hobby Lobby argued that requiring them to provide the means by which their employees could obtain contraceptive methods that they consider to be seriously immoral forced them to choose between exercising their religious beliefs and avoiding severe financial penalties. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, the question was whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 permitted a for-profit company like Hobby Lobby to deny its employees health care coverage of commonly used FDA-approved contraceptives based on the religious beliefs of the company's owners. In a highly controversial decision, the court said yes. In this 2014 opinion of the court in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc. Justice Alito delivered the opinion of the court. We must decide in these cases whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, RFRA, permits the United States Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, to demand that three closely held corporations provide health insurance coverage for methods of contraception that violate the sincerely held religious beliefs of the company's owners. We hold that the regulations that impose this obligation violate RFRA, which prohibits the federal government from taking any action that substantially burdens the exercise of religion, unless that action constitutes the least restrictive means of serving a compelling government interest. In holding that the HHS mandate is unlawful, we reject HHS's argument that the owners of the companies forfeited all RFRA protection when they decided to organize their businesses as corporations rather than sole proprietorships or general partnerships. The plain terms of RFRA make it perfectly clear that Congress did not discriminate in this way against men and women who wish to run their businesses as for-profit corporations in the manner required by their religious beliefs. Since RFRA applies in these cases, we must decide whether the challenged HHS regulations substantially burden the exercise of religion, and we hold that they do. The owners of the businesses have religious objections to abortion, and according to their religious beliefs, the four contraceptive methods at issue are abortifacients. 
if the owners comply with the HHS mandate. They believe they will be facilitating abortions, and if they do not comply, they will pay a very heavy price, as much as $1.3 million per day, or about $475 million per year, in the case of one of the companies. If these consequences do not amount to a substantial burden, it is hard to see what would. Under RFRA, a government action that imposes a substantial burden on religious exercise must serve a compelling government interest, and we assume that the HHS regulations satisfy this requirement. But in order for the HHS mandate to be sustained, it must also constitute the least restrictive means of serving that interest, and the mandate plainly fails that test. There are other ways in which Congress or HHS could equally ensure that every woman has cost-free access to the particular contraceptives at issue here, and indeed, to all FDA-approved contraceptives. In fact, HHS has already devised and implemented a system that seeks to respect the religious liberty of religious nonprofit corporations while ensuring that the employees of these entities have precisely the same access to all FDA-approved contraceptives as employees of companies whose owners have no religious objections to providing such coverage. The employees of these religious nonprofit corporations still have access to insurance coverage without cost-sharing for all FDA-approved contraceptives, and according to HHS, this system imposes no net economic burden on the insurance companies that are required to provide or secure the coverage. Although HHS has made this system available to religious nonprofits that have religious objections to the contraceptive mandate, HHS has provided no reason why the same system cannot be made available when the owners of for-profit corporations have similar religious objections. We therefore conclude that this system constitutes an alternative that achieves all of the government's aims while providing greater respect for religious liberty. And under RFRA, that conclusion means that enforcement of the HHS contraceptive mandate against the objecting parties in these cases is unlawful. As this description of our reasoning shows, our holding is very specific. We do not hold, as the principal dissent alleges, that for-profit corporations and other commercial enterprises can opt out of any law they judge incompatible with their sincerely held religious beliefs. Nor do we hold, as the dissent implies, that such corporations have free reign to take steps that impose disadvantages on others or that require the general public to pick up the tab. 
and we certainly do not hold or suggest that RFRA demands accommodation of a for-profit corporation's religious beliefs, no matter the impact that accommodation may have on thousands of women employed by Hobby Lobby. The effect of the HHS-created accommodation on the women employed by Hobby Lobby and the other companies involved in these cases would be precisely zero. Under that accommodation, these women would still be entitled to all FDA-approved contraceptives without cost-sharing. Part 1 Section A. Congress enacted RFRA in 1993 in order to provide very broad protection for religious liberty. RFRA's enactment came three years after this court's decision in Employment Division, Department of Human Resources of Oregon, v. Smith, 1990, which largely repudiated the method of analyzing free exercise claims that had been used in cases like Sherbert v. Verner, 1963, and Wisconsin v. Yoder, 1972. In determining whether challenged government actions violated the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, those decisions used a balancing test that took into account whether the challenged action imposed a substantial burden on the practice of religion, and if it did, whether it was needed to serve a compelling government interest. Applying this test, the court held in Sherbert that an employee who was fired for refusing to work on her Sabbath could not be denied unemployment benefits, and in Yoder, the court held that Amish children could not be required to comply with a state law demanding that they remain in school until the age of 16, even though their religion required them to focus on uniquely Amish values and beliefs during their formative adolescent years. In Smith, however, the court rejected the balancing test set forth in Sherbert. Smith concerned two members of the Native American church who were fired for ingesting peyote for sacramental purposes. When they sought unemployment benefits, the state of Oregon rejected their claims on the ground that consumption of peyote was a crime. But the Oregon Supreme Court, applying the Sherbert test, held that the denial of benefits violated the Free Exercise Clause. This court then reversed, observing that use of the Sherbert test whenever a person objected on religious grounds to the enforcement of a generally applicable law would open the prospect of constitutionally required religious exemptions 
from civic obligations of almost every conceivable kind. The court, therefore, held that, under the First Amendment, neutral, generally applicable laws may be applied to religious practices even when not supported by a compelling governmental interest. Congress responded to Smith by enacting RFRA. Laws that are neutral toward religion, Congress found, may burden religious exercise as surely as laws intended to interfere with religious exercise. In order to ensure broad protection for religious liberty, RFRA provides that government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion, even if the burden results from a rule of general applicability. If the government substantially burdens a person's exercise of religion, under the Act, that person is entitled to an exemption from the rule unless the government demonstrates that application of the burden to the person one, is in furtherance of a compelling governmental interest, and two, is the least restrictive means of furthering that compelling governmental interest. As enacted in 1993, RFRA applied to both the federal government and the states, but the constitutional authority invoked for regulating federal and state agencies differed. As applied to a federal agency, RFRA is based on the enumerated power that supports the particular agency's work. But in attempting to regulate the states and their subdivisions, Congress relied on its power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to enforce the First Amendment. In City of Bourne, however, we held that Congress had overstepped its Section 5 authority because the stringent test RFRA demands far exceeded any pattern or practice of unconstitutional conduct under the Free Exercise Clause as interpreted in Smith. Following our decision in City of Bourne, Congress passed the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act of 2000, RLUIPA. That statute enacted under Congress's Commerce and Spending Clause powers imposes the same general test as RFRA, but on a more limited category of governmental actions. And what is most relevant for present purposes RLUIPA amended RFRA's definition of the exercise of religion. Before RLUIPA, RFA's definition made reference to the First Amendment. In RLUIPA, in an obvious effort to effect a complete separation from First Amendment case law, Congress deleted the reference to the First Amendment and defined the exercise of religion to include any exercise of religion, whether or not compelled by or central to a system of religious belief. 
and Congress mandated that this concept be construed in favor of a broad protection of religious exercise to the maximum extent permitted by the terms of this chapter and the Constitution. Section B. At issue in these cases are HHS regulations promulgated under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, or ACA. ACA generally requires employers with 50 or more full-time employees to offer a group health plan or group health insurance coverage that provides minimum essential coverage. Any covered employer that does not provide such coverage must pay a substantial price. Specifically, if a covered employer provides group health insurance but its plan fails to comply with ACA's group health plan requirements, the employer may be required to pay $100 per day for each affected individual. And if the employer decides to stop providing health insurance altogether and at least one full-time employee enrolls in a health plan and qualifies for a subsidy on one of the government-run ACA exchanges, the employer must pay $2,000 per year for each of its full-time employees. Unless an exception applies, ACA requires an employer's group health plan or group health insurance coverage to furnish preventive care and screenings for women without any cost-sharing requirements. Congress itself, however, did not specify what types of preventive care must be covered. Instead, Congress authorized the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, a component of HHS, to make that important and sensitive decision. The HRSA, in turn, consulted the Institute of Medicine, a nonprofit group of volunteer advisors, in determining which preventive services to require. In August 2011, based on the Institute's recommendations, the HRSA promulgated the Women's Preventive Services Guidelines. The guidelines provide that non-exempt employers are generally required to provide coverage without cost-sharing for all Food and Drug Administration FDA-approved contraceptive methods, sterilization procedures, and patient education and counseling. Although many of the required FDA-approved methods of contraception work by preventing the fertilization of an egg, four of those methods may have the effect of preventing an already fertilized egg from developing any further by inhibiting its attachment to the uterus.
HHS also authorized the HRSA to establish exemptions from the contraceptive mandate for religious employers. That category encompasses churches, their integrated auxiliaries, and conventions or associations of churches, as well as the exclusively religious activities of any religious order. In its guidelines, HRSA exempted these organizations from the requirement to cover contraceptive services. In addition, HHS has effectively exempted certain religious nonprofit organizations described under HHS regulations as eligible organizations from the contraceptive mandate. An eligible organization means a nonprofit organization that holds itself out as a religious organization and opposes providing coverage for some or all of any contraceptive services required to be covered on account of religious objections. To qualify for this accommodation, an employer must certify that it is such an organization. When a group health insurance issuer receives notice that one of its clients has invoked this provision, the issuer must then exclude contraceptive coverage from the employer's plan and provide separate payments for contraceptive services for plan participants without imposing any cost-sharing requirements on the eligible organization, its insurance plan, or its employee beneficiaries. Although this procedure requires the issuer to bear the cost of these services, HHS has determined that this obligation will not impose any net expense on issuers because its costs will be less than or equal to the cost savings resulting from the services. In addition to these exemptions for religious organizations, ACA exempts a great many employers from most of its coverage requirements. Employers providing grandfathered health plans, those that existed prior to March 23, 2010, and that have not made specified changes after that date, need not comply with many of the Act's requirements, including the contraceptive mandate. And employers with fewer than 50 employees are not required to provide health insurance at all. All told, the contraceptive mandate presently does not apply to tens of millions of people. This is attributable in large part to grandfathered health plans, over one-third of the 149 million non-elderly people in America with employer-sponsored health plans, were enrolled in grandfathered plans in 2013. 
that count for employees working for firms that do not have to provide insurance at all because they employ fewer than 50 employees is 34 million workers. Part 2 Section A Norman and Elizabeth Hahn and their three sons are devout members of the Mennonite Church, a Christian denomination. The Mennonite Church opposes abortion and believes that the fetus in its earliest stages shares humanity with those who conceived it. Fifty years ago, Norman Hahn started a woodworking business in his garage, and since then, this company, Conestoga Wood Specialties, has grown and now has 950 employees. Conestoga is organized under Pennsylvania law as a for-profit corporation. The Hans exercise sole ownership of the closely held business. They control its board of directors and hold all of its voting shares. One of the Hans' sons serves as the president and CEO. The Hans believe that they are required to run their business in accordance with their religious beliefs and moral principles. To that end, the company's mission, as they see it, is to operate in a professional environment founded upon the highest ethical, moral, and Christian principles. The company's vision and values statements affirm that Conestoga endeavors to ensure a reasonable profit in a manner that reflects the Hans' Christian heritage. As explained in Conestoga's board-adopted statement on the sanctity of human life, the Hans believe that human life begins at conception. It is therefore against their moral conviction to be involved in the termination of human life after conception which they believe is a sin against God to which they are held accountable. The Hans have accordingly excluded from the group health insurance plan they offer to their employees certain contraceptive methods that they consider to be abortifacients. The Hans and Conestoga sued HHS and other federal officials and agencies under RFRA and the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment, seeking to enjoin application of ACA's contraceptive mandate insofar as it requires them to provide health insurance coverage for four FDA-approved contraceptives that may operate after the fertilization of an egg. These include two forms of emergency contraception, commonly called morning-after pills, and two types of intrauterine devices. In opposing the requirement to provide coverage for the contraceptives to which they object, the Hans argued that it is immoral and sinful for them to intentionally participate in 
pay for, facilitate, or otherwise support these drugs. The district court denied a preliminary injunction, and the Third Circuit affirmed in a divided opinion holding that for-profit secular corporations cannot engage in religious exercise within the meaning of RFRA or the First Amendment. The Third Circuit also rejected the claims brought by the Hans themselves because it concluded that the HHS mandate does not impose any requirements on the Hans in their personal capacity. Section B. David and Barbara Green and their three children are Christians who own and operate two family businesses. Forty-five years ago, David Green started an arts and crafts store that has grown into a nationwide chain called Hobby Lobby. There are now 500 Hobby Lobby stores, and the company has more than 13,000 employees. Hobby Lobby is organized as a for-profit corporation under Oklahoma law. One of David's sons started an affiliated business, Mardell, which operates 35 Christian bookstores and employs close to 400 people. Mardell is also organized as a for-profit corporation under Oklahoma law. Though these two businesses have expanded over the years, they remain closely held, and David, Barbara, and their children retain exclusive control of both companies. David serves as the CEO of Hobby Lobby, and his three children serve as the president, vice president, and vice CEO. Hobby Lobby's statement of purpose commits the Greens to honoring the Lord in all they do by operating the company in a manner consistent with biblical principles. Each family member has signed a pledge to run the business in accordance with the family's religious beliefs and to use the family assets to support Christian ministries. In accordance with those commitments, Hobby Lobby and Mardell stores close on Sundays, even though the Greens calculate that they lose millions in sales annually by doing so. The businesses refuse to engage in profitable transactions that facilitate or promote alcohol use. They contribute profits to Christian missionaries and ministries, and they buy hundreds of full-page newspaper ads inviting people to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Like the Hans, the Greens believe that life begins at conception— and that it would violate their religion to facilitate access to contraceptive drugs or devices that operate after that point. They specifically object to the same four contraceptive methods as the Hans, and like the Hans, they have no objection to the other 16 FDA-approved methods of birth control, 
although their group health insurance plan predates the enactment of ACA. It is not a grandfathered plan because Hobby Lobby elected not to retain grandfathered status before the contraceptive mandate was proposed. The Greens, Hobby Lobby, and Mardell sued HHS and other federal agencies and officials to challenge the contraceptive mandate under RFRA and the Free Exercise Clause. The district court denied a preliminary injunction, and the plaintiffs appealed, moving for initial en banc consideration. The Tenth Circuit granted that motion and reversed in a divided opinion. Contrary to the conclusion of the Third Circuit, the Tenth Circuit held that the Greens' two for-profit businesses are persons within the meaning of RFRA and therefore may bring suit under that law. The court then held that the corporations had established a likelihood of success on their RFRA claim. The court concluded that the contraceptive mandate substantially burdened the exercise of religion by requiring the companies to choose between compromising their religious beliefs and paying a heavy fee, either close to $475 million or more in taxes every year, if they simply refused to provide coverage for the contraceptives at issue, or roughly $26 million annually if they dropped health insurance benefits for all employees. The court next held that HHS had failed to demonstrate a compelling interest in enforcing the mandate against the Greens' businesses and, in the alternative, that HHS had failed to prove that enforcement of the mandate was the least restrictive means of furthering the government's asserted interests. After concluding that the companies had demonstrated irreparable harm, the court reversed and remanded for the district court to consider the remaining factors of the preliminary injunction test. We granted certiorari. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended.